Welcome back to Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. I'm your host, Doug Maurice. Not Browns this week. You're warned, but it's awesome. Jeff Passan, Solon High School grad, Northeast Ohio native, national baseball writer for Yahoo Sports, one of the very best baseball writers in the business, is here to talk about the Indians. Are they as good as the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Astros? Uh, what is their window to win? How do they compare to the uh, great Indians teams of the 90s that Jeff grew up on? How did growing up in Cleveland affect Jeff uh, as a sports fan and a sports writer? Really interesting conversation, some personal stuff, and then some really good analysis of the Indians. And I've been wanting to get to the Indians on this podcast. So we found the ideal guy to do it with. Next week, this is going to be a Browns season preview. I've got one guest lined up already. We'll hopefully have one or two more, and it might even come out before Friday because I want you guys to have time to digest it before the Brown season starts. But I thought it was important as we get into September here to check in on the Indians. They're going to be in the playoffs. They're going to be a contender to win a championship for Cleveland. And Jeff Passan from Yahoo Sports is here to break that all down on Takes by the Lake. All right, so happy to be joined by Jeff Passan from Yahoo Sports, one of the great baseball writers in America, and a loyal Clevelander, right? Jeff, how deep are your Cleveland roots for these for our Takes by the Lake listeners to get to know you? Can I, can I be called a loyal Clevelander if I haven't lived there since I was 18 years old? It's in your heart, though, Jeff, isn't it? In your heart and soul? It is, it is, it is definitely in my heart. It is definitely in my blood. Uh, I have a lot of friends who still live there. We we have a fantasy baseball league that uh, we have been doing since we were ten years old, and and our, my group of friends is now thirty seven and thirty eight years old. So we've we've been going on like a quarter century plus every year, getting together, doing an auction draft, and I'd say probably. 30 or 40% of the time we do it in Cleveland. So I'm back every few years in addition to when the Indians are actually good in Cleveland. And uh, it's incredible to see how it's changed. And it it brings a smile to my face when fellow baseball writers come to Cleveland and say, oh, this this place is actually pretty fun. So, Jeff, we know that your dad worked at the Plain Dealer when you were growing up. Um, just for anybody, when when you're growing up a sports fan and you're growing up with the dad in the business, did did you pretty much know you wanted to be a sports writer from the get go, or did you want to be something else? And you kind of eventually found your way into this business. I think I wanted to be a doctor until I was twelve, and then I realized I was probably going to be too squeamish to do that. Yeah. And, and so then the, you know, panic sets in, I'm like, what, what am I going to do? Where do I pivot to? And sports is just, I I think it's the same thing that bites all of us. It's just a, a, a bug that gets into you and you can't get rid of it. And, and I started when I was pretty young, but you know, I knew when I was like 13 or 14, it was what I wanted to do. And I remember I think I might have been a freshman or a sophomore in high school when I went to school at Solon. And they had this mentorship program that you could get involved with. And uh, I, I went to the Lake County News Herald and said, would you guys let me do some work there? I'll work for free. And they were like, sure. So I was in the Indians clubhouse when I was a teenager. I wrote a really long 
purple, awful piece about Omar Vizquel for my high school newspaper. <laughs> but he was, te- I mean, he was terribly nice to me. So I, I have, uh, I, I, I really appreciated the the way he treated me. And I covered beach volleyball, and I was covering high school sports, and it was great because I was at the, you know, every every winter I would come back from college and. The News Herald would pay me like 30 bucks to go cover a high school basketball game or during the fall before school started to cover high school football games. And that was beer money for the next semester. It was great. I could I could just go out and do what I enjoyed doing and I, I could actually get paid for this. It was like such a novel concept. It, it is a strange thing when you realize that people will pay you to go to games when we all reach that point in our career and it's like man this is this is working out so far um yes i've had and, and high school high school you know you don't realize how spoiled you are until you cover a high school game like it, i almost want to yeah. go back and cover a high school game these days it's so much if harder ever I'm, if ever i'm like sour about you know something that's going on and, and generally i'm a i'm a pretty upbeat guy like generally i i like my job and what i'm doing and enjoy it but if ever there's one of those moments it's like just go cover a high school game keep the stats yourself deal with kids who have no desire typically to talk or really don't have any life experience to say anything substantive and try and write something interesting about that yeah and i'm sure we're we're you're younger than me but we're both of the age where we were back in the era when you're trying to get into the principal's office to plug your computer in to like oh, find God. a place to file. You know, your oh, I've, I, running getting through a, McDonald's getting a, getting a phone line. Yeah, getting a phone line was was back in the day. Like the I remember, I I uh, I was riding on an airplane back from I believe it was Houston. And I was going back. My first job was in Fresno, California. And I was going back to Fresno. Um, and I, I met I met a woman on the plane. And she's like, want to go to Vegas with me? And I was like, okay, let's go to Vegas. So I diverted my, <laughs> diverted my trip from Fresno, rebooked a ticket, went to Vegas. And, and I, I, was writing a, you know, I was writing a story. I had to file a story that day. And we ended up staying just at this terrible hotel. We didn't even stay on the strip. We stayed at like downtown Vegas at this terrible hotel where I assume like people stole the phones because they had the phone bolted down (laughs) and I could not get the phone line out to file my story. So I had to go like hunting around this awful hotel where people were like gambling away their social security checks Looking for a hotel, looking for a phone line somewhere so I could send this stupid notebook to the Fresno Bee, and finally, eventually, I had to pay like five dollars <laughs> and buy some tchotchke at the gift shop to let the gift shop people or to have the gift shop people let me use their phone line. I feel like there's a there's a whole podcast in the meeting a woman on a plane and diverting to Vegas story, but um... it, it was it was that was a I. I was 22, and it was a great decision. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the life of a sports writer. Um, so, Jeff, the, the one thing, we I've had a couple people on the podcast who grew up in Northeast Ohio. Joe Posnanski and Daryl Morey, uh, Hugh Hewitt, people who have gone out and done things. I'm just always curious about 
Especially Mitch Hugh Hewitt's not telling you a story about meeting someone on a plane and going to Vegas, is he? No, no, I, that I, that would have been great. I, he had stories <laughs> about like worked, working in the Nixon Library, but no, he did not have a Vegas plane story. Um, wh- what what are the things? What are the things that you remember from Cleveland sports that that stuck with you? That that hurt you that that made you love sports is, is there something where you were you a baseball fan first back then um were there things with the browns we know that growing up as a cleveland sports fan is an interesting thing what what's maybe the thing that sticks out for you i i feel like that what what has encapsulated my experience as a cleveland sports fan more than anything are the three words that that a, a website strung together and it's like the most brilliant turn of phrase that I could think possible. Factory of sadness. Yeah. That was my, that was, let's put it this way. I love sports, but I do not root for teams anymore. Right. I don't root for teams, not because I'm a sports writer. I think, I, I do think that there is room to be like an objective sports writer while still having loyalties and allegiances I don't root for teams because the, the the juice is not worth the squeeze for me. Like the the pain that I had growing up as an Indians fan, as a Browns fan, and as a Cavs fan ultimately got to me to the point where I said to myself that my you know, no matter how excited I'm going to be when one of them wins a championship and and inevitably one of them was going to win a championship. No matter how excited I was going to be for that, all of the moments leading up to it and the disappointment when you put them together were not going to be worth it and balance that out for me. So I decided it's just much easier to enjoy the games, to enjoy the players, to enjoy the performances, but not to root for the laundry. And my life has been has been much better since then. And, and it, it, the power of sports to me is that everybody keeps coming back, especially Clevelanders. It's, all, it's, it's almost like you feel like you're pot committed in poker. And so you just have to have to push all in at that point. Right. And that you've got a city full of people who are all in because there, there's no other recourse for them. Like you have spent so much of your life futilely rooting for these teams that you just don't want to miss out once it actually happens. And so whether it was, you know, the, the Indians being the only team that lose the world series to the Braves or whether it was Edgar Renteria who in our fantasy league after 1997 was literally off limits. Like he was a real, he was like a really good shortstop. Undrafted. Not allowed. Un, not allowed to draft Edgar Retheria. Draft anybody else you want. You could draft wow. the most horrible human beings possible, but Edgar Retheria, in the eyes of our fantasy league, was even worse than that. Wow. And, uh, and you know, I was young when all of the, the horrible Browns on-field stuff happened. Right. Uh, I, was, I was a teenager when, you know, they moved. And, and that was... I think that was, you know, I think that was subconsciously for me a seminal moment, uh, not just like in my in my life, but in the way that I viewed sports. Yeah. I don't, I Your don't team think, left. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I and and I don't think to that moment that I recognized 
that it's just a business and that we as people who love it, who love it, who love teams are little more than pawns and that they, they, you're like, here's the truth. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. And it's a cynical thing to say, and it's a sad thing to say, but it's a truthful thing to say too. Yeah. And, and I think getting that education early on uh, in both the way that the business of sports can not, not just mistreat a fan base, but just out and out ignore it. And, and compounding that with the, the crushing on-field losses, uh, it prepared me for the life of cynicism that is sports writing and, and, and journalism. Yeah. And I think it, may, it, it makes me ask better and more pointed questions because I don't look at these institutions like they're fallible. I, I think Ohio State is, is the most letter-perfect example of that of sports running amok and people standing by institutions in spite of what is so patently, obviously clear. That is, that is an interesting life experience that again, most sports fans wouldn't have gone through Jeff, right? That, that, that almost makes me want to find, I mean, there's just people all over Cleveland of your age, of your generation who have had that experience, and I'm sure it's been dealt with to some degree, but especially if if the Browns are getting it back together now, there are still people who were Browns fans first who who have that, you know, sort of in their heart and in their soul that 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 changed them, you know, people who were right at that age, right? Right at that age when you're a teenager, when yeah. when that's the time you you really understand stuff for the first time. You love your team, but you understand it better. You're not just an eight-year-old. Um, and to have that ripped away is very interesting. So I want to get to this now, Jeff, because you would understand this from a national context as well as anybody. There are all these people, all these pot-committed people that you just talked about. And pot-committed is a great way to say it because you don't want to fold right when you're going to hit, right? So, so the Indians, where they are right now, when you see the Indians right now and you see the Indians of Lindor and Ramirez and Kluber and Bauer and Carrasco and Brantley and you see this group, are you reminded of the Indians of Tommy and Ramirez and Bell and Vizquel and, and that era? Um, or, or where is there a difference? Or do you think do you think these Indians could be on that kind of, you know, three, four, five year run, but then also the the thing Indians fans don't want is to get out of there with no World Series. What are any comparisons between that core group back then and this core group? Yeah, I, I think that it is fair to to look at them and and see similarities. I I don't think this team is as good as those teams. Okay. I think those te- I think those those Indians teams of the nineties are are the, the is the best collection of talent ever in baseball not to win a World Series. Which, I, music to the ears of Indians fans. But it's... I, and you think it, about it, it's though. Tough to, it's, tough to, it's tough to argue. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really tough to argue against that. Just be... I mean, let's, you know, let's look at the... I'm just going to pull up the... I mean, 95, 97, which, which team yeah, do you maybe, think is better? Maybe 95. I don't know. What do you think yeah. is better? Let's, let's, let's look at 95. So... Uh, Omar Vizquel, I don't think he's going to make the Hall of Fame, but he's a borderline Hall of Famer. Right. Uh, Jim Tomey, 
is a Hall of Famer. Carlos Baerga that year uh, was was pretty much like center of his prime. Twenty six year age twenty six season hit three fifteen OPS eight hundred. Uh, you know Baerga was really really good. Albert Bell in left field Hall of Fame prime. Um, right. Kenny Lofton. Uh, should not have been off the Hall of Fame ballot the first time through. But again, he's the Hall of Very Good. And uh, Manny Ramirez really came into his own that season. Age 23 season, OPS 960. Uh, Eddie Murray, Hall of Famer, DH. Sandy Alomar is the catcher. Um, Another guy who was, I believe, a multi-time All-Star. You know, Dave Winfield was on that team. I know he was old. I know he didn't play particularly well. But that, uh, you know, Brian Giles uh, wound up having a very, very good and underappreciated, underrated Major League Baseball career. Couldn't crack that roster. Jeremy Burnett, another Mm -hmm. guy who wound up having multiple 30 home run seasons. Uh, Couldn't crack the roster. Uh, Russ Brannion, I believe, was in the minor leagues. Couldn't crack that roster. And and you look at the pitching, and yeah, the pitching was a weakness on that team. But I'll tell you, when I I, I think if you were to, if you were to put Terry Francona of 2018 in charge of that Indians team, this is to take nothing away from Mike Hargrove, but the way Terry Francona manages in the postseason with and and this would have been novel bordering on ridiculous back then but if you have a bullpen of Jose Mesa, Eric Plunk, Julian Tavares, uh Paul Ossenmacher, you know, you can get away with an awful lot in the postseason. Mm-hmm. You can get away with an awful lot in the postseason, the way that those guys pitched back then. And I think if you could have been more aggressive with them, you know, if you put this team Today, it's the best team in baseball right now. I mean, they, that, that team won 100 games and played only 144. Right. The fact that they did not win the World Series was was incredible to me. So I, I think, getting back to your original question, I think comparing this team to that one, I, I don't know if it's fair because I just don't know that there is the overwhelming talent. But this team is eminently capable of winning a World Series. I, I, I have no question that this team can do it. Uh, Trevor Bauer needs to be back. Right. And they need either. I don't think they need both, but I think they need either Cody Allen, Wright, or Andrew Miller. Heavy. Okay. But with adding hand, maybe they don't need both. You need one of those two with Brad Hand and a couple of the other guys in the bullpen you can get through. Yeah, okay. and and Simber, you know, Simber has not been great. Uh, I think I think there's there's better to come out of him. Uh, but Brad Hand is is a stud. He is really good. And and there's there's going to you know there's going to be a point though at which he's never pitched in uh, in October before. Yeah, and and I, and I think the the biggest advantage the Indians have, I, I guess it's sort of uh, the two things go hand in hand here. No pun intended. They they have uh, the easiest schedule by far of any contender, and they have a huge lead because they play in one of the worst divisions I've ever seen, and so so they can rest players during September and and really get ready for October in the way that they should. So, so that leads me, there are two very important questions that I think, again, you're as qualified to answer as anybody out there that you can provide for Indians fans that maybe the guys covering the Indians every day can't do. One question, I'll, I'll focus on the Indians first, and then I'm very interested in my second question. First question is, 
playing in the Central, how bad the Central is, has that puffed up the Indians at all? Is it possible that we there's any misread on the Indians because they get to play so many games against four almost non-competitive teams? Has has that is there going to be anything where you get to the postseason and, and it's a shock to the system because you're not playing the White Sox and the Royals and the Twins and the Tigers anymore? Or are they still really good? I, I think, I think yes. Like, I think both of those okay. are, are true. Uh, they're, they're, they've played 60 games against the American League Central this year. They've won 40 of them. Uh, but, but you know what? They should. Like, they're, they are that much more talented than the rest. They've played 21 games against the American League East this year. They've won 10 of them. Right. They've played 32 games against the American League West. They've won 14 of them. And so, I, you know, I believe in October that talent wins. And, and I say that almost skeptical of myself and in my philosophy in some regards because for for the first three and a half months of the season i looked at the washington nationals and i said they're more talented than everyone right or, or than, than than most teams in baseball they're going to be fine and here we are 134 games into the season and the nationals are literally a 500 team right and so talent doesn't always play it doesn't but I, I look at the way that the, the Indians are structured right now. And, and their strengths are that they have stars who, who can do something dynamic against the best of the best. I, I trust Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor and, and Michael Brantley uh, to, to go hit against just about anyone out there. I don't know, I don't know if, uh, if it's quite... The same with Edwin Encarnacion anymore, um, and and I, you know, a guy like Yonder Alonso uh, is is a a a pro and someone who's going to do something big in a playoff series. And I think Jason Kipnis has that that moment in him too. Um, but this is really a, a star based team when you look at that, and and you know Corey Kluber can shut anybody out at any time, and you know Trevor Bauer can shut anybody out at any time. And, and I really do wonder what they're going to do with the back end of their rotation. Are they going to, you know, is, is, is this team better with Shane Bieber as, as a middle inning guy or as, as Kluber, Bauer, Clevenger and Bieber as your rotation with Carlos Carrasco going and just destroying guys, it, you know, you, when, when the middle of the lineup comes up, whether it's the sixth inning, the seventh, the eighth, whatever it is, being that right-handed version of Andrew Miller, you put him in there, you let him throw 98 and just throw a bunch of sliders and just kill guys. And, and I could see, I could see Kluber in that role, or I could see Carrasco in that role. I almost wonder if, Bauer is best positioned to be in that mm. role. And, Rubber and I say that yeah. Bauer, Bauer, here's the thing. You know Bauer's going to want to go out there and and throw 100 pitches having not thrown for for 6 weeks. Like that's just going to be how he is. But 
but he is someone who can go. He is someone who can throw every day. Right. Like he really, he can throw every day. He believes he can throw every day. I think Terry Francona believes he can throw every day. And I'm talking about throwing multiple innings every day, like the truest throwback reliever you can imagine. And if you have a guy going out there with four or five different pitches, quality pitches and elite pitches out of the bullpen, uh, that is a weapon that nobody else has. And so I almost wonder if that's the strategy that the that the Indians use. They, they just, you know, especially if Miller cannot be that guy right. because of his shoulder or because of the, the varying injuries that he's had, uh, if Trevor Bauer potentially turns into that guy. I love, I love that idea, especially, again, the idea of if you don't have both Miller and Allen healthy and at peak performance, if you only have one of them, yep. say Miller's not there, but you think... Allen and Hand can handle the eighth and ninth, and you let Trevor Bauer handle the sixth and seventh on a lot of days. Um, that seems like a better use of him than than maybe pitching once in a in a series as a starter. You know, I, I think there's and and it does seem like as you mentioned with Tito, the Indians are the kind of team that might be open to that. They seem like they might be open to problem solving in a way that maybe some managers wouldn't be talking about turning Cy Young Award winners into middle relievers for the playoffs. We know Bauer's injury factors into that. But do you think the Indians might be more open to solutions like that than some teams? Uh, you know, I think more teams are are recognizing the value of that these okay. days. The, the, Indians, the Indians have always been progressive in terms of how they deal with arms. I think there are teams out there that are that are five years behind the Indians. And and that's, you know, that's part of, you know, having Carter Hawkins in in your player development system is that. And and having a general manager as open-minded as as Chris Antonetti is and having someone uh, you know in your in your injury uh, prevention program like Lonnie Soloff, who who studies these things and who spends a lot of time, and I mean a lot of time, uh, really trying to understand the arm. And I, I mean Eric Binder, another guy who is making his way up the ranks. Like the Indians player development system is about as good as it gets, and. And these guys, these guys have have come through and and really learned that uh, the the way to do it better than anyone else out there is to have communication with the big league team and and to have a process. You know, the the, the Cardinals talk about the Cardinal way, and and that's all well and good, and it's branded nicely. I think the Indians have the best coordination between their player development system and their major league roster of anyone. And that's a testament to, to Chris Antonetti and Terry Francona's relationship as well as, as what Mark Shapiro left in place before he went to Toronto. Fascinating. Um, two giant big-picture questions left for you, Jeff. The one I really wanted to get to, the American League in general. When you look at the Red Sox, the Yankees, and I'm assuming the Astros are going are gonna to win their division and be there, how good is the American League right now? Because I've, I've been writing about this, and it's obvious to anybody, you know, how good the Indians are is only part of the equation. You could have a year where if other teams were down, this Indians team could be the best team 
in a league, and, and right now they're not. How, how good is the American League right now, do you think, and, and the idea of the Indians having to get through a postseason where you're going to have to beat two of the three of the Astros, Red Sox, and, and uh, Yankees to get to the World Series, how difficult is that, or am I maybe overstating how good the other three best teams in the American League might be? I mean, you're. let's put it this way. You're going to have to beat, in the first round, the defending world champions who in their rotation have Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, Dallas Keuchel, um, and, and Charlie Morton, right. who in their, in their, their infield is Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, and, and whichever of their good hitters they stick at first base. Their outfield uh, has George Springer in center field, Josh Reddick in right, and, and whether it's Marwin Gonzalez or whoever it is in left, they're going to have someone who's hitting out there. It's a very, very good team. And I don't think there's any question that the Indians could go out and beat them. Because the, the thing you have to understand is no matter how good you are over 162 games, the playoffs are an entirely different brand of baseball. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it, it's it, and I like it. I like the evolution of the playoffs as much as I love seeing a guy, you know, seeing John Smoltz go out there, Jack Morris go out there and throw ten innings. You know, as as much as I love the the notion of an ace throwing a complete game, I just as much like the scrambling aspect of it because. It appeals to, to the strategic side of baseball, which I think is, is for my part, the, my favorite element of it. It's what do you do when faced with a particular situation, when the numbers say this, when your instinct says that, when those two are butting heads, what decision do you make? Which players are capable of stepping up at a particular time, how does clutch manifest itself when so many out there don't believe clutch exists? I think that uh, to me, clutch absolutely exists. It's just really difficult to quantify because, uh, you know, measuring a guy's heartbeat literally is not going to do it. We, you know, we don't know what's going on in his brain. We literally don't know how his brain waves are firing at the moment. I think we're going to, I think we're getting very close to a point where we can measure that kind of stuff, and that's sort of the next step in analytics, going inside of somebody and trying to figure out how his body works. But in the meantime, before we actually know that, before next to a guy's batting average is his pulse and his brain waves, I'm going to enjoy seeing those small sample sizes Mm -hmm. play themselves out like they do. So you think, so would you say, if if we're assuming... Um, we're getting the Indians, the Astros, the Red Sox, and the Yankees. Where do the Indians, where do the Indians fit into that in your mind? Um, we know there's luck involved in the postseason. We know there's a lot of things that go into it. The game does change. What kind of chance do you give the Indians to get to the World Series with those other teams there? I think the Indians are the fourth best team in that group, and I think they have a 23% chance or a 24% chance of making it. So the, which is which yeah. is to say, it's it's all even. I mean, there there are very very slight advantages. I don't even know if it's that much. I think in, in an 
In a five-game Indians-Astros series, I'd give the Astros a 52-48 advantage. So that's the thing that's 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 interesting to me, that you're saying they're the fourth-best team. I I think uh, for Indians fans, if someone said, listen, it's going to be almost impossible to beat the Red Sox in the playoffs. Anything can happen, but they're so good, it's going to be really difficult. I didn't know if somebody might say that. No, that's... that's, that's, You can can feel that. That's just not reality, though, at all. That's they're not they're not distinctly better than the Indians. If they're you know what, if you put the Red Sox in the National League, maybe then. Yeah. But but against I, I think the Indians are if you put the Indians in the National League right now, they're the favorite. Yeah. They're the favorite to win the pennant in the National League right now. I think there are four really, really, really good teams in the American League. And and that all of them have just about an equal chance of reaching the World Series. I made a comparison a few weeks ago. It is. It's like the NBA West, you know, that everybody sort of assumed that, you know, you got the Rockets and the Warriors and everybody, multiple teams out there. And, you know, the Cavs came out of the East, but it's like just a lesser league. Um, and now the Indians yeah. are, you know, Cleveland's sort of on the other side of that. They're on the good side. Um, so Yeah, th- I, think, I think the difference, though, is that in, in basketball, you usually know who's going to win the series, right? The better, like, yeah. Like, you usually know. I know that the Cavs were, and look, maybe the Cavs, maybe what they did against Toronto, just the way that they manhandled them, um, was was a bit surprising. I, 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 could, I could see that argument. I have no idea who's going to win any. I, I mean, like, mm-hmm. when they make, when, they, when, they, when Yahoo makes me make picks, right. it, it just, it, it makes me cringe because there's nothing to be gained out of it. And I just, I, I don't know. I just don't because these teams are all so evenly matched. And, and the, the, small, the small sample of a, of a short series makes it near impossible to, to take what you've gleaned from the regular season and actually apply it. So one big step back question here to finish, Jeff. And, and, and I'm not... Again, I'm not, I'm not asking for a prediction, but I'm asking for your analysis of how the Indians have gone about things. Everybody in Cleveland, we're always talking about the window with the Indians. The window, the window. You have this time when things are coming together. Uh-huh. With what they've done, you know, signing Encarnacion to get a big bat like that to add to this core. Trading Mejia this year to help the bullpen and, and trading a young guy that, you know, was a big-time prospect for them. I've liked all that stuff. Go for it now. If you fall off the end of the earth, if if Lindor leaves as a free agent eventually, and and your window closes, you you want to maximize your chances right now. What what do you think the the Indians should do as sort of a small market team with this collection of talent right now? Doesn't mean they're going to guarantee themselves a World Series, but but what would your advice be on maximizing the opportunity while they have some of these guys here, or 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 am I thinking about it wrong? And you know what? You, you got to keep a balance. You don't want to, you know, destroy the farm system to hit this window. You, do, do the Indians need to think long term, or do they need to go for it in the next two, three years? I think the reason the Indians were were willing to trade Francisco Mejia is two things. Number one, I don't think they see him as a catcher, um, or I don't think they saw him as a viable major league catcher. And mm-hmm. number two, their system's actually. I think better than people give it credit for. And it, and it goes beyond Tristan McKenzie. I think Nolan Jones is going to be a guy who has a chance to be a top 25 prospect by the end of next season. 
And I think they had a really good draft this year in getting Noah Naylor and Ethan Hankins. I think those were guys who, who dropped, especially Hankins. You know, he had an arm injury. He was, he was at one point uh, in the running for, for first overall pick. Um, uh, I think he has a chance to, if he can stay healthy, to be an absolute dude. And, and a guy like George Valera, uh, th- these are all guys in the low minor leagues, but uh, I know a number of, uh, of scouts who have said, watch George Valera. He's got a chance to be something. And, and I think beyond that, it's their, their ability to develop guys. Mm-hmm. And, and they're really good at, at taking someone like Shane Bieber, who was a middling starter in college, uh, you know, wasn't even the, the Friday night guy on his team, and finding finding guys like that and saying we trust our player development system to turn this guy into something, to find in him what he might not have even known he had, and and they've done that with him. Uh, you know, I, I know Eli Morgan is a guy who's struggled a bit since getting bumped up to high A, but he was an eighth round pick last year who, who dominated the lower levels and still has a really good strikeout to walk ratio and has an excellent changeup. I mean, he's somebody who, you know, has no business, frankly, at five foot 11 uh, right hander being as successful as he's been. But the Indians are a really good organization for that. So I I think what that allows them to do is to to maximize the now because they trust enough in their process that the future is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Now, other organizations have done that, too, and have fallen on their faces. And that's a risk. There's no question. You are risking something by doing that. But when you have a, a finite amount of money to spend, and the Indians this year, I mean, their, their payroll's you know coming up against $150 million this year. So they're, they are spending money. Right. Um, but when, you're, when, you're, when you can't go into the $200 million range like, like the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Dodgers, you do need to be creative. And that's uh, that balance that I think, they have struck very well and and will continue to. As for when the window shuts, I mean, Kluber's around until 21. Bauer's around until 20. Ramirez is around until 23. Um, Lindor, I think, is around till 21. So I, I'd say up until, well, you know, the next two years are going to be huge for the Indians. Because if things don't go well at the end of twenty, you have to consider trading Lindor that offseason. Because right. if you trade if you trade Francisco Lindor, it's we're going to see it this offseason. Um, I'd love to see what Nolan Arenado could get for the Rockies. And if you're the Rockies and and you don't think you're going to be able to resign him, you have to consider doing that. So I'd say the Indians have two full years where they can still go for it. But man, the the Red Sox are not going anywhere. Right. And and the Yankees are only going to get better. And uh, the Astros are are, you know, they, they've got a couple of years. Their window is about the same as the Indians. Right. Right. And 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 the Rays are going to be really freaking good soon. Like they're they're good now. They're going to be really good. So I, I think there are a lot of competitors, thankfully for the Indians. Uh, the central looks like it's going to be a, a mess for a while. I, I I don't see the White Sox really coming into their own until twenty, okay. um, 
and and the Tigers are are going to be non-factors, and the Royals are going to be non-factors, and and the Twins, I. I, I'm done trying to figure out what the Twins are going to be because they confuse the hell out of me every year. Jeff, tell the people where they can find your work. And then you you obviously are such um, an expert on the arm. And I know your book came out a while ago. Just if people haven't heard about that book, I know it's been out. Just explain to them a little bit about that and uh, and what you did right in that. Uh, essentially, I, I immersed myself in uh, Tommy John surgery for about three and a half years. I followed a couple of guys coming back from uh, the procedure and and what it was like, not just physically, but the the mental grind, uh, as well as looking at the youth element and why Tommy John surgeries uh, have become as prevalent as they are, not just in the United States, but I went to Pan. Uh, I, I tried to take the the entire world, you know, from a 35,000 feet in the air, look at this, uh, at this epidemic and, and encapsulated in 350 very easy and readable pages. So it's, it's a perfect, uh, I was going to say it's a perfect book for the pool, but yeah, the pools are kind of closing down now that it's Labor Day. So, uh, it's, it's a great book to read by the fire when you're trying to, stay warm and in the the lake effect snow hits and uh you can go and get that at amazon or any of your local bookstores and uh you can read my work at yahoosports.com uh and and listen to me on the yahoo sports mlb podcast we uh indians fans in particular i had like a great 60 minute conversation with trevor bauer that was maybe my favorite thing i've done in any medium this year so i wow. urge you to go subscribe and listen to that and uh I, we, we make some uh, occasional Cleveland references uh, on the podcast and talk about the Indians quite a bit. So uh, please go and enjoy that as well. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I imagine we'll see you uh, see you maybe in Cleveland at some point in the playoffs. Um, and uh, and it's just you know it's just you're just you're just like a lot of my listeners here, Jeff. You're just a Cleveland kid trying to find his way in the world. So that's all. That's listen. That's all I'm doing. East side or die. Uh, we just hired, in fact, our podcast producer, uh, we just hired her and she's, uh, Lindsay Fulton and she is from Berea, I believe. All right. And, and yes. And, uh, and I don't like her. I've never met her. I've never <laughs> talked with her, but I, I, it is, it will forever be ingrained in me that if you're from the West side, I just don't trust you. Lovely. Um, wonderful, Jeff. Thank you so much for the conversation and, uh, we'll catch up with you down the road. Sounds great, Doug. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Uh, you can follow Jeff Passan on Twitter at J-E-F-F-P-A-S-S-A-N. Remember, his dad, Rich, wrote for The Plain Dealer, worked at The Plain Dealer for 42 years. So uh, a journalistic background in Cleveland. You can follow me, Doug Maurice, on Twitter, D-O-U-G-L-E-S. M-E-R-I-S-E-S. Get subscribed on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you find the finest podcasts. Make sure you get subscribed to Takes by the Lake. Make sure you're listening to our Buckeye Talk podcast. Me, Bill Landis, Tim Bielek. Such an interesting time for Ohio State football. We're chronicling all that there. And make sure you're back. Next week, we're back with the Browns with a season preview. Um for what should be a very interesting Brown season as well. So, thanks to Jeff. Thanks to you guys. I'm Doug Maurice, and we'll talk to you next time.